Welcome back to Read It or List It. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Ashley. And we're going to do a quick little recent reads reading update before we get into an interview that I had the opportunity to do with author Chelsea Fagan, who is the author of a book called A Perfect Vintage that I think fans of The Idea of You are going to really enjoy this summer. It's an interview that I did on my own, so I just wanted to catch up with Ashley a little bit before we got into the interview. Hi, Ash. Yeah, it- Hi, and definitely stick around for this interview because it is a really, really interesting and fantastic conversation that Phoebe had. I've heard so um, many like really great things from like what Phoebe took out of the interview and then obviously listening to it myself. So definitely stick around, but I'm just like, you know, I'm glad to be here. I know. Get to contribute in this little way. I feel like I keep having these conversations with authors and the whole time I'm like, I really wish Ashley was here because I feel like she would really like this conversation. So I know I feel that <laughs> way. I was so mad that I missed TJ Alexander's interview, which is out now. You can listen to that. Um, but I was present for BK Borison's interview, yes. which is coming next, next week. week. Yeah. But I sounded like a blabbering idiot. I feel like 90% of that interview, I was just like, I love you. So like, it's probably good that you do these like solo good portion because I like am so not good at it. Like you're. No, we love the passion. We love the passion. Um, Speaking of passion. Speaking of. (laughs) I finished. So in our last episode, Ashley recommended um, or I had I had her choose from the my my pile, my TBR pile. And I finished Imogen, obviously, by Becky Abertali. And I and I chose so good, right? Oh my gosh, it was so good. I just love how Becky's books move. And I love, mm. like, she writes such great friend groups. And this one is really fun because it takes place. So there's a high school senior who, you know, she's felt like she's just like the perfect ally. She works really hard to be a good ally. She has a queer sister. Her best friend has just come out as queer. And her best friend is a year older, goes to college, and um, has this wonderful queer friend group. And Imogen goes to visit over spring break because she's going to be going to college there the next year. And it's like this like blissful week of like discovering herself and feeling like that she belongs and it's it takes place in upstate New York so like I knew it was familiar with a lot of things and it was great so I think I highly recommend it uh it was a really really good read I am adding it to my TBR which is like literally never ending but I feel like it could be really good on audio and especially like that's what I was thinking you don't read it a lot like of a YA right mm-hmm. Not, I like them on audio I, I think really you, like yeah YA on audio I don't know who the narrator is, but just to, like the pacing and like the dialogue, I feel like would be really fun on audio and quick. It's like I mean, it's like almost a four hundred page book, but it's a four hundred page YA book, so mm-hmm. you know. Well, speaking of audio, I am like that is all I've been able to do for the past I don't know how many months. I have not read a book with my eyeballs. Oh, since Happy Place, but like that doesn't even count because I did Happy Place also on audio. Like I did mm-hmm. like my my surround sound reading experience with happy place um so i haven't like eyeball read a book in a while Hmm. i actually can't even think of one that i've just read like with my eyes um 
So I am like 90%. I don't know if 90%. Like, well, I guess I can tell you exactly how far I am in my audiobook. I am using up all of my credits that I have stacked up uh, at Libro and at Audible. Um, like, obviously, I do my I use Audible for Audible exclusives and then or or indie books that aren't mm-hmm. on Libro. And then for all my like Trad Pub, I get those from Libro. And like, I've just been like knocking them down. Like, I've been getting everything on audio. There's been so many good ones. Um, so, anyways, I am listening to In the Weeds on audio, and I'm like. I think I'm like 70-ish percent the way through. And I love I Beckett. Love Beckett. I, I was just going to say, like, I was having a, I thought there was going to be a um, MWC moment, which stands for Men Who Cry, in, <laughs> when he was in the, um, when they were in Trivia Night, and he, like, freaked out, and he's like, I, it's too loud. I thought he was going to, like, he was very emotionally vulnerable, and I was mm-hmm. like, this almost counts as an MWC moment. Maybe it's like MWF, so. men who feel. <laughs> men who feel. Yeah. My favorite type. And like Beckett, thick thighs and men who are in with their emotions. Like Beckett is, Beckett is it for me. So <laughs> I love that. Also, I, I decided that, that um, while I will not commit to a tattoo in oh. L.A., I want to get my second ear piercing. Are you sure. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think I can do it. I really don't. Okay, it's, it's fine. I'm gonna have my tattoo itched because I have, I'm gonna have a book the appointment, but like, I'm like fairly positive. Like next week, I'm getting a tattoo, and then like, and, and two weeks after that, I'm getting another tattoo, and maybe another one after that. So okay. I'll be, I'll but have I, my itch itched. Scratched. <laughs> oh, scratched. Can we make t-shirts? Like, I'll have my itch itched. <laughs> interesting um oh wait stay tuned (laughs) stay tuned for the end of this episode in the interview because there is a moment where i use a word that's a terrible time to use that word and i left it in because chelsea and i had a good old giggle about it um it was so funny but yeah so i will i want to get a second ear piercing so i will do that i only have have one yeah because my mom had her ear her ear ripped, like when this is kind of oh, gross, and so that she happened to my best friend. Yeah, and she never got it fixed, and so I don't know. But I literally I was at Target the other day, and I was looking at all of the like sparkly earrings, and I was like, oh, I could have been really into like layering my jewelry, and I was like, I really mm-hmm. wish I could wear these like two earrings at the same time on the same side, mm-hmm. and I was like, why haven't I done that yet? And I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna do it. So okay, I fully support that because the last like two times, I have uh, like had the urge to do something spontaneous. I'm like, okay, maybe let's not do a tattoo, maybe a piercing. Um, and I like, I kind of want to. I have my second and my third holes. Okay. So I have six, three and three, but I kind of want like a fourth. Well, I don't know. if you want to save it for LA, I'm down. Yeah, I would save it for that. Although, like, it's also been so long since the recovery period. So I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I was eight. But I <laughs> fully support you. Okay, thanks um, so much. <laughs> in another time, I'll tell you guys the story of how um, I'm pretty sure this, like, I don't think that this facilitated, like, 
my parents going back to court over me, but like it was definitely something my mom was like not happy about that my dad like took me to get my ears pierced and like didn't tell her that that's what he was. Oh no, <laughs> that's, that's what he was doing. And I just like came home from like spending the weekend with him with like my ears pierced. <laughs> oh my gosh, oh gosh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, well, so it's a whole thing. So glad we made time to share these fun little stories. <laughs> Yeah, there is an interview in this episode. So. Yes, so um, here is my interview with Chelsea Fagan. Welcome to Read It or List It. I'm so excited to have author Chelsea Fagan with us today. Chelsea is the author of the probably one of the most beautiful books that's out <laughs> this summer. The cover is absolutely stunning. Um, Chelsea is the author of A Perfect Vintage. So welcome, Chelsea. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Chelsea Fagan. Um, I am an author, as you mentioned. I've actually written two other books, but they were both nonfiction books. Um, this is my first fiction book, uh, my first novel. And um, in addition to doing this, I also am the co-founder and CEO of a company called The Financial Diet, which is a media company that uh, covers personal finance, mostly geared toward uh, younger adult women. Yes, which is fascinating. And I'm so excited to talk about the difference between writing your nonfiction books and then diving into fiction. But there is a little bit about, I was saying that one of my favorite parts of this book was the the way that it sort of makes you check your internalized misogyny a little bit for some things. And then also there is an emphasis on, you know, protecting yourself as a woman in a financial way and all of that. So the the story of a perfect vintage, I feel like for years people have been trying to find a book that made them feel the same way as The Idea of You by Robin Lee. And now we finally have a book that captures a similar idea, but in, in an entirely new way. So can you tell us a little bit about A Perfect Vintage? Yes. Well, The Idea of You is my favorite romance novel of all time. Mm. Uh, I'm actually doing an event with Robin next month. But so oh, really so exciting. Yes. She's so chic. I'm, I can't I can't wait to, to be in the same room with her. But um, yeah, so to your point, uh, as far as the similarities go, so it is uh, a story of an older woman who falls in love with a significantly younger man. Um, and also similarly to the idea of you, there's um, you know a lot of kind of compromising situations that that creates for her close family and, and friends. Um, I think, you know, obviously the the setting of the story is quite different. So it takes place in the Loire Valley in France, um, which is a very prominent wine region in central France. And something that a lot of people don't necessarily know, and I didn't know until my I married my husband, whose uh, family um, has on one side of the family there, they work in wine, um, they are farmers, um, not they don't have a chateau for the record. Um, <laughs> but something a lot of people don't know is that in France and in a lot of Europe generally, there are a lot of these old properties that have kind of fallen into disrepair over 
hundreds of years, but they still belong to these families that used to be, it used to be generally in Europe that aristocracy, like landed gentry people who had large parcels of land and these big chateaus or, or villas in other countries, um, that they were also very wealthy and they lived there and they maintained them. Um, but over the years, aristocracy, spoiler alert, that we got rid of the monarchy there that doesn't mean <laughs> anything anymore. Um, so they're often not wealthy, um, but they are very land wealthy. So a lot of times you have these chateaus that fall into disrepair, the vineyards aren't producing grapes anymore. Um, and so the protagonist of my novel, her job is to go into these uh, estates and turn them into boutique hotels and vineyards, which is often one of the most lucrative things that you can do with a piece of property like that. And so, yeah, she leads these projects. She designs the hotels um, and she has to manage the families that she works for. Um, so that's sort of the plot. Yeah. And it definitely makes you want to go visit wine country in in France for sure so I, I thought it was it was really fun because do you follow Olivia Mentor I do yes I she's redoing a place in upstate New York I think right so as I was reading I was just sort of like you know different time period different place but I was already in the uh in the mindset of uh, restoring an old property. And I was actually, I was at a wedding this weekend. I was at an old farmhouse in Connecticut and I was talking to the bride's grandfather and I was like, nobody brings these like rich colors into homes anymore. And I know there's a lot of like, you know, people joke about like the beige homes and all the white that people are bringing into like the modern architecture. And one of the things that Leah does is she has an, an emphasis on color and fun and bringing in breathing fresh life into the chateau. And uh, that's a it was a really fun aspect to have um, in the story. So how are you feeling as a first-time fiction author? Very good, actually. You know, it's funny. I thought that it would be, like, it's been an extremely stressful process from a logistical perspective mm -hmm. because I decided to publish this myself. So I had to assemble a team. I had to deal with all of the, like, production and marketing and shipping and all. Like, that's been a nightmare, to be honest. Um Although next time I feel like it'll be a lot easier because I've already put in place all of the systems right. and it's just about execution. Um, but like even like the cover and thank you for your kind words, but like that's like an original oil painting that I commissioned for the cover. And so it's been like working with the artist and then working with my designer and like this, that, and the other. So from a um, that perspective, it's been a lot, although that isn't, you know, the case for every um, novel. Like sometimes it's, you know, you obviously have a, a publisher that you're working with who takes care of a lot of that stuff. But on the creative front, I mean, I was worried that I would be more um, nervous about people's response um, or that anyone who isn't vibing with it would affect me. Like, because I think that a lot of writers, um, you know, I mean, sometimes quite frankly, and I've been a writer my whole career, you know, you can be a little fragile and what have you, but I think um, I've actually been pleasantly surprised that for me, like I feel so good about the book and I'm, I'm so happy with how it's come out that like, I just feel very at peace with it. It's like, I put it out there. I, this is the book I wanted to write. I'm happy with how it came out. And I honestly feel just very um, satisfied that I did it because I think what I would have really regretted, which I think a lot of people end up doing, um, was just never putting it out there at all, you know? Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, Elizabeth Lenny is one of my favorite artists. Um, and I think if 
for anyone who's unfamiliar, Elizabeth Lenny is the cover artist for Carly Fortune's books as well. So if you can picture the like beautiful, like um, soft lines and vibrant colors that she has. Um, and obviously I'm sure people have seen, I feel like A Perfect Vintage has been floating around everywhere just because it's very aesthetically pleasing to look at <laughs> um and then you know obviously the the contents pull people in but we here at reader my co-host ashley is not able to join us today but we love indie romance here and indie romance has had like a huge moment i think in the last uh three years because of tiktok and so obviously you've published before but what drove you to do indie publishing because it is a lot. It is, you're not only the creative aspect, you're the business aspect. And that can be a lot mentally. So I think for the rest of my career, I'll probably do a hybrid. Like my company, The Financial Diet, we're publishing another book next year. Traditionally, I'm not writing most of it, but um, I think that traditional publishing has a has a role to play for sure. And like in the case of the books that I do, um, in, in that capacity, you know, they're very high production, they're four color mm -hmm. books, they're, you know, on glossy paper, they're, th those would be really, really difficult to indie publish at any kind of scale while not, you know, basically obliterating your margins, um, just because, you know, it's as an indie author, you don't have access to a lot of the offset printing resources that you need for that kind of thing. However, for trade paperback, um, where it's just, you know, a cover, a soft cover, a black and white interior, like nothing fancy. The technology for specifically print on demand has reached a level now where you no longer have to deal with warehousing. You no longer mm -hmm. have to deal with, you know, a, a bunch of different printers in different regions. Um, so I knew that it was feasible on a logistical level. Also, because I do have this media company, I already had a large audience that I could market to. So I knew that that box was kind of checked. And a friend of mine, um, she actually started a book marketing consulting firm. Um, like I was her first client, um, but she, she runs a large online book club. And so like, I knew that I had pieces of the puzzle, you know, my co-founder is, is a designer, so I knew I could work with her. Um, but to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's for financial reasons, like just to give you a sense of scale. So the kinds of um, advances that I would have been looking at for this novel were around $35,000, which mm. is not nothing, but I also, I have a full-time job. So this is not like the money that was, that I was planning to live on. And then after you earn that advance out, which is very much not a given trade paperback royalties are 7.5%, which is very low. And that's a real problem with the romance industry and, and, and mm -hmm. genre fiction in general is that, you know, genre fiction in general sells by far the most of any kind of book. And yet, because they're almost all trade paperback releases, the authors get terrible deals. They don't get paid enough on the back end. The hardcover royalties for context are 15% after the advances earned out. So it's a very kind of slanted system. So on my end, I've invested probably right now. I'd, I have to check QuickBooks, but I'm probably in about forty thousand mm -hmm. um, dollars. But on the back end, my profit margins per book sold are between forty and seventy percent, as opposed mm -hmm. to that seven point five. So I did, you know, a business case as I would with any other um, business venture, and it was very clear that once you earn back your initial investment, which I felt pretty confidently that I could do, um, the the numbers just scale way, way better and to the extent that I probably will be able to do this again and maybe with other titles as well. Yeah. I'm upset that my co-host Ashley is not here today because this is a conversation that I think she would 
absolutely love to be a part of because that's a huge thing that we talk about um, when it comes to our favorite indie authors that at the end of the day, like the creative control that you have, um, because publishing is, a, it's quite an antiquated industry, but uh, that's quite fascinating to hear. I'm curious as to, for like, from a creative standpoint, what you enjoyed about indie publishing and like your, uh, your inspiration, your writing routine, your process, um, all of that. Cause like you said, you do have a full-time job as well. So I do work a four day work week, which does give me more free time. And I also don't have, or plan to have children. So I, in terms of finding the time, I'm really, I like to always have some big project going on outside of my work, just because I do. I mean, when you work 32 hours a week and you don't have kids, <laughs> you just do have a lot of time. And I, you know, don't get me wrong. I love watching reality TV and stuff like that, but I also, you know, I like the direction that it gives me. And I write very quickly because as I mentioned, I've, I've written my whole career. I started my career as a freelance writer and then worked for other media companies. So I'm very used to having to write large quantities a day. Um, so I write about 5,000 words a day. I wrote the book in 11 weeks. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I mean, editing, it took like three times as long, but, um, but yeah, so I, I work very quickly. Um, so from the workflow perspective, I do feel that I, I want to, I only clarify the flexibility that I have because I don't think the amount of time and energy that I've invested in it is necessarily realistic for everyone, or at mm. least not on the time scale that I did it. Um, but in terms of what I enjoyed about indie publishing and why I, I personally, I, I've talked to my agent about this um, quite a bit because, you know, um, it was obviously like kind of a, a frustrating moment for him when I decided I was going to pull it from consideration and do it myself because then he obviously doesn't get a commission. Um, but when I went through the numbers with him, I don't think I'll ever traditionally publish a novel because, um, the numbers just don't make sense. Like they, the kind of advance that they would have to offer in order for it to be worth it is just not going to happen. Um, and then kind of beyond that, like I really relish having creative control over the mm -hmm. process, like being able to, you know, do an original painting for the cover and work with the designers I like and work with, you know, the editors I wanted to work with and things like that. Um, but I will say uh, something that I think more, author, more aspiring authors don't necessarily realize is how much of the marketing work really falls to the author, even if they are traditionally published. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that although I've had to do more work in some ways, like, for example, for the last book I did, which was nonfiction, we had an 11 city book tour. We financed it. We found the sponsors. We got all the venues. We got the food and beverage donations. We got the gift bags. We even had to pay wholesale for the books that we were putting in the gift bags. Like we had to sell all the tickets and people don't realize that they assume that the publisher is producing all of that and they do not. Um, so I, I do take some satisfaction in the knowledge that although I've been working really hard on marketing efforts, I would have been doing that anyway. Right. I, totally understand that. And I think that's something that's very, as I've gotten to know more authors, you know, it's not all coffee and lighting a candle and, you know, just letting the words flow, which it's a very important part of that. And I would like for you to set the scene for us on um, how you, because especially since, you know, you, if you wrote this first draft in 11 weeks, um, I want to know where you wrote it, how you were able to capture that, just the beauty of, um, 
the French countryside and like the feeling of like the sun soaking into your skin and all of that. Um, so I actually pretty much exclusively write in hotels. Um, oh, I like- love that. I love that. <laughs> I don't rent a room for the record. I have like talked about this on TikTok before. I feel like it's such an underrated thing. Like I don't really like working at coffee shops because I feel like the vibe in coffee shops is often very stressful. Like people mm-hmm. are stressed in coffee shops. And also I feel bad if I sit there too long. The most underrated places to work are like upscale hotel lobbies and bars and cafes because they're so used to people just like spreading out there all day. Cause they have like mm-hmm. guests who have like a flight or, or in between cities or whatever. The people watching is amazing. It's not that much more expensive for like a cappuccino and a bottle of water. Like, and you can just hang out there all day. The vibes are amazing. Um, So yeah, I pretty much exclusively work in hotels. I actually have been meaning to do a power ranking of New York City hotels to work in on TikTok. I have to do that. Yes. You've motivated me. I'm going to, I'm going to actually do it. Um, But so yeah, that's where I worked. Um, And then in terms of the inspiration. So I lived in France for several years. Um, I spend a lot of time there because my husband is French. um, Mm -hmm. So we go back there a lot. And like, his grandmother, like, it's not at all the Loire Valley, like they live like actually pretty close to Spain. But, um, you know, when you go there, it's the farm and the animals and the sun and the vineyards and working on the vines and things like that. And it definitely it's a very evocative setting. That's not, I mean, at least for me, like, it's such a specific, um, there's such a specific kind of physicality to that, like the French countryside that I think is one of the most evocative things to render. Like it, 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 the, the beauty of it does a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah. I have somehow ended up on, um, American expats in French, in France, TikTok. So <laughs> there's like this one, she's like American mom in Paris, but she's like now moving to X, I believe. Um, and like showing like this new, the, the farmhouse and just like, um, do you, are there some girl who always, her father lives on a mill in France. And whenever she visits from London, I'm like, this is just, it, it captures something that I think, especially to us as Americans is just very different from how we, we live. So it's that like intoxicating escape that everybody's looking for in a summer read. Um, did you have favorite characters to write or, cause it's written in third POV. Um, so did you have char- favorite characters to write where some a little bit more difficult to capture? I think for me, uh, well, first of all, I like have just a soft spot for the character of uncle Nico because I, mm-hmm. and I've had so many people call him out to me, which I'm very charmed by um, because I like, that's a very specific vibe. I don't know if, everyone has members of their family like this, but like, I feel like in a lot of family dynamics, especially large families, there can often be a very toxic dynamic within the, within parts of the family. And there are sometimes members of the family who've like been like, actually, no thanks. I am not going to be part of this toxic dynamic. Like I'm going to break some cycles. Like I'm going to make different choices. And, um, you know, in the case of uncle Nico, like he's been sober for 20 plus years. Like he lives in basically in the jungle in Brazil. Like he, he definitely has this spirit about him that is like, you know, my brother and, you know, other members of my family are kind of caught up in a lot of, you know, really bad cycles. I'm going to not be a part of that. And I think that's always just a really satisfying, um, place to, to think of and to write from. Um, 
And, you know, in terms of the protagonist, you know, it's really funny. I made a conscious decision in writing a protagonist that I actually don't love in the sense of like, she actually has problems and makes bad choices and like is, you know, dealing with some real mental health issues. And I think often, especially in romance, not always, but especially in romance, I think there's a real imperative that a lot of writers operate under that a protagonist needs to be very, very, very likable and very relatable to a maximal amount of people. And because I think sometimes there's just not the same leeway that we give to, for example, literary fiction or other genres where you sort of understand that like the protagonist is not meant to be the best person. Um, so I, while I don't like vibe with her the most, and I definitely don't identify with her in a lot of ways, I did enjoy the process of like, you know, actually sort of exploring a woman who, I mean, to be fair, if you're at the level of a career where you are being featured in a multi-page spread and architectural digest about a hotel that you created, like you're in the top like 5% worldwide of probably the top 1% worldwide of, um, you know, your industry. And I think a lot of people, um, are to some extent naive about the kind of personal sacrifices and the kind of like honestly, mental unwellness that it sort of demands to be operating at that level. Um, so although I don't find her particularly likable in a lot of ways, I really did enjoy uh, exploring that. Which is so important. I mean, you could probably tell, obviously, listeners can't see my face during during Chelsea's uh, response to that question. But like, these are the things that I've been saying for years when it comes to romance novels, like the the absolute demand for women to be likable in books is ridiculous because we are not all likable all the time. And I come from an acting background and the most valuable piece of advice I've ever gotten from one of my favorite acting teachers is that you can't judge your character because you cannot play them if you are judging them because you're you're inserting yourself into their choices and decisions. And I think that same thing has to be true for us as readers and as writers to create an authentic character. You can't constantly be sitting there and judging their choices. Like, you know, we get a beginning, middle and end. We're going to find out why she does these things. And um, I don't know. I loved Leah's strength um I loved the deck the juxtaposition between her and Stephanie and you know even though sometimes we want to wring Stephanie's neck <laughs> as I as I say don't judge them but you know we can take can contain multitudes people um there's plenty there there's plenty of juicy drama in here amidst I think very important and powerful messaging of um you know, and I don't think anybody sets out to create an important message. Um, but, you know, as readers, we we take away what we do from stories. So what are you hoping are some of the things that readers take away from A Perfect Vintage? Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned Stephanie, who is the other female main character, who is it's very interesting seeing people's responses because um, the people who of the people who have liked the book less, um, and I'm speaking specifically of Goodreads because I don't, luckily people who don't like the book know better than to tag me in, in their takes on social media. But um, overall, I've been extremely happy with the response, but of the people who have not vibed with it quite as much, um, 
the overwhelming reason is because they don't find the main character likable, which I don't want to sound dismissive, but when I read that, I'm like, okay, it wasn't for you. Like, do you know right. what I'm saying? I don't even really internalize it to that extent because I actually think, I think there are critical, there are types of critical feedback that are really beneficial to take in. Um, and I also think there are kinds of critical feedback that actually would be a mistake to take in, in the sense of if you just go toward that universal likability, as, as you, as you mentioned there, I think that it can really kind of um, narrow down the, the depth of uh, characters you can portray. But to the other extent, uh, a lot of people, not a lot, but some people have pointed out that they really don't like the character of Stephanie. And you mentioned sort of wanting to wring her neck. And I think, um, and I do too, in a lot of ways, because ultimately Leah and Stephanie to me represent the two pathways that are most available to women to finding mm -hmm. financial security. Um, financial security and money in general and the role that it plays and the privilege that it confers is a huge theme throughout the book. And both Stephanie and Leah make I would say fairly compromised choices at different points in order to shore themselves up financially. And Stephanie has a, you know, a daughter. So she has even mm -hmm. more pressure to um, kind of put a lot of things aside in the, in the name of financial security. And I think one thing that I hope people take away, because I assume that most people who read it will take issue with both at some point, probably one more than the other, um, but to your point, actually, I think one thing that I really hope people can kind of keep with them is the strong sense of women are not faced with a ton of good choices. Women deal with profound sexism professionally and um, are judged very harshly if they are single and don't have children, but they're also very compromised if they do have children and if they're reliant on a man, if they don't make the choice to become financially independent or, you know, if that choice is even available to them. So I, I hope that people can come to a sense of um, empathy about all of these compromised choices that women are having to make. And similarly, another big theme is ageism, um, which I think like, I don't know, I have so many thoughts and feelings about this in general. I'm so like annoyed and grossed out with how women are treated as they age as opposed to men. Like every time I, like today I saw Al Pacino's having his fourth kid with his girlfriend at age 82. Oh, my God, I know. That was what I woke up to this morning and I was like, what? And I'm like, first of all, that's so unfair to that kid, but like, whatever, like mm -hmm. set that aside. But I just like the leeway that men and women are given to make certain choices, to have second acts, to have all of these life experiences kind of on demand as whenever they want um, versus how harshly we judge women for um, not following a very specific timeline. Because ultimately, like the, the subtext is women are only valuable insofar as they are like of childbearing age or insofar as they look young. Um, so I hope that people also walk away with like maybe, maybe kind of gut checking with themselves about some of their own judgments about ageism. Absolutely. That's something that I, um, as I turned 30 this year. And so as, you know, a, like a younger millennial, um, something that I have been struggling with, especially on social media, the last couple of years is like the, the, the idea that we age out of making mistakes and that like, oh, well, you're an adult. Why are you doing that? Or like, what did you expect? You're an adult. And I'm like, but I'm still a human being. And so yeah. I think that what I really loved about the characters in this book, um, we obviously uh, have, is it Theo or Teo? I wasn't sure. Yeah. 
Teo. Okay. So mm -hmm. we have Teo's sort of young and idealistic viewpoint on love, which is so wonderful. Um, and I think very important to experience when you're 24 years old. Um, but then, you know, the, the reality of the situation and Leah's perspective that she brings, um, and I think that that um, is a beautiful mix. When I, I auditioned for Juilliard's master's program, but the the MFAs and the BFAs all mingle. And something that they said was that you, like someone who's in their 40s can learn as much from an 18-year-old as an 18-year-old can learn from someone in their 50s or 60s. Like there's no limit on knowledge and like personal experience. And, uh, you know, it is still a romance novel and we have all of these fun, spicy, steamy moments, but I was really, I mean, I was touched by the, the overarching themes, I think, um, in there. Thank you. So, all right. So speaking of romance novels and some, maybe some of your inspirations, what is on your summer reading list? Oh my gosh. Uh, so I'm definitely reading. Um, I actually have, I have not yet read Carly Fortune's books. Um, okay. so I'm saving them for, um, my book tour. Um, cause I'm visiting a lot of cities this summer. So I'm going to take every summer after with me on the book tour because so that, um, painting that you mentioned, she licensed, um, uh, Elizabeth Lenny's work again shout out to the amazing Elizabeth Lenny um and that's one of the places that I initially saw it and I um was very heartened to hear that the actual book itself everyone I know loved it so I'm very glad uh that the the interior of the book matches the gorgeous exterior um so definitely reading that um I'm reading uh the new Adriana Herrera book um oh. I loved uh, a Caribbean heiress in Paris. Um, so that's going to be, uh, high up there. The new Ava Wilder book I'm really excited about. It's so good. I read it this. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm really excited for that. Uh, Stone Cold Fox. I'm definitely reading, oh, okay. mm -hmm. um, dating Dr. Dill. I'm really excited. I've never read that one. Um, one. I'm like, I want to read. I'm because basically I'm, I have a pretty busy summer ahead. So I'm really looking forward to just like a lot of really escapist fun stuff, except for, I think stone cold Fox is a bit more, um, a little more sinister. And on that note, I'm like debating whether or not I want to read the guest. Have you read it? I haven't read it yet. I like, I am interested in it, but I also feel like I, everyone's like, this book is so stressful. And I'm like, I don't know if I can deal with that right now. I mean, I feel that very deeply in my soul. I am <laughs> summertime is the, the escapist moment for me. Um, oh, and also lastly, I'm a huge, huge, huge Kennedy Ryan fan. So um, I'm going to do her Kingmaker series too, because I haven't read Oh, that. we love Kennedy Ryan. Um, you named so many people who we are fans of here at Read It or List It. So that's very exciting. Um, all right. So just to get a little a visual um, for our listeners, do you, did you I know some some authors do not picture people while they're writing, but if you had to choose a little little fan cast for a perfect vintage, because I know who I would put in these roles. Oh my gosh, who? <laughs> I would love to hear yours. I first. mean, the only option is Timothy Chalamet for Teo. <laughs> okay, so I like I get it. I a lot of people have said that to me. I and I and Call Me by Your Name was another comp title for me. I love that movie. It's one of my all-time like top five favorite I think it's movies. It's the most romantic film of all time. 
I so agree. I also, I hate to say this. I rarely say this, but I like it better than the book. Um, I do too. I do too. <laughs> I think the book is a little more self-serious than it needs to be. And I think mm-hmm. the movie like lightens it up a little bit. Um, also, I hate to say it because obviously we now, given what we know about him, but greatest audiobook ever. Um, oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but uh, so I get that. I see it. But I think what I would love, you know, if, you know, aiming for the stars here this is like a movie or a limited series I would really love for the actor who plays Teo to be kind of an unknown and for this Mm -hmm. to be like a very kind of career making role for them because I do think there's something really exciting especially when you have the age dynamic as well for um like we saw with Bridgerton for example like Mm -hmm. I love that on Bridgerton it sort of takes these people you've never heard of and makes them feel like you've always known them you know yeah Um, so I love that. But my all-time dream casting for Leah, I don't know if you had anyone in mind for her. I'll let you go first if you did. Oh, no, I don't have a leg. She's oh. a little, I, I guess, to, to be completely honest, I picture someone like Robin Lee. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, who's just there- like, who's just like so gorgeous and like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, My like actual woman that I had in mind while writing her was Aubrey Plaza. Um, Which I especially like, because I, I like, I actually wrote it before I watched The White Lotus, but when I watched season two of The White Lotus, I was like, this is so her. I wish that everybody could have just seen the way that my jaw dropped because that changes everything in my mind in like a really good way. Yay. (laughs) That makes me like rethink so many things. Yes. I love that. I know. I'm very like, I'm going to like move heaven and earth to get a copy in her hands this summer, but uh, we'll see if that's even possible. I highly doubt it. She's obviously in demand, but I do think that, I mean, one thing that I think Aubrey Plaza does so well as an actress is creates these characters who are in many ways kind of um, superficially unlikable, but Mm -hmm have like a real depth and you really end up rooting for her and you really end up sort of identifying with her even if you wouldn't necessarily make the same choices like I think it's very unfortunately because we live in such a sexist society it's like very difficult often for actresses to be able to access that simultaneous place of um unlikability and relatability and I think that she nails it with her characters oh yeah um absolutely she she has that like I think she would capture the the guardedness that Leah has, but that Tao, like Tao obviously knows that he can like penetrate, like, oh, that's a terrible word. You, ter- terrible time <laughs> to use the word, Phoebe, but um, like he can, I think that like, she's not as like hard as her exterior makes people like believe. And she just like needs the people who like give to give her a chance to like be herself. And I think that that is what attracts them to each other. Um, Well, on that note, I was thinking about actresses for Stephanie. And although this may seem a bit out of left field, given that she does like a lot of like action roles and stuff too. Did you see from scratch? Yes. I would love Zoe Saldana for that character. And a fun fact, I actually found her because I was looking for Middle Eastern actresses and she is also part Middle Eastern. Yes. Did you ever see the movie Center Stage? I did. Oh, yeah. Because she's in that. That was like one of her first roles. Yes. Um, Yeah. So I think that she would be a great character. I mean, I loved her in From Scratch. Talk about a devastating show, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I I read that book and then I was like, we're going to make this a show. 
<laughs> which is a very important story to tell and I think it touched a lot of people but anyway well that is all very exciting and I hope that that helps our listeners sort of picture um what you would be getting yourselves into amidst this gorgeous backdrop of the French countryside and a chateau um well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today Chelsea do you have any final thoughts for our listeners I would like to de- <laughs> dedicate this to all the authors out there. I think that uh, so I am very interested as you as you know from the conversation we just had about it but also um you know anyone who is familiar with the work that I do at TFD like knows how important financial transparency and advocacy are to me. And so I'm actually, I'm going to record it later today. I'm going to do a video that has like a total financial breakdown of, you know, publishing this and everything to to try and make that more accessible. But I will say, if you are an author who has some institutional privilege and who is making, you know, a good amount of money and who has leverage, like you need to, I, I feel like it is almost at some level an ethical responsibility to talk a little bit more about the money here and start advocating a little bit more for the money here because the 7.5% royalties on trade paperbacks are killing authors. And it's so unfair again, because this is a genre that outsells almost every other kind of, I think it's like, I think mystery is number one and then it's romance, but suffice to say- Romance keeps the lights on for publishing. Yeah, yes, and a, a lot of authors can barely make ends meet, even though they uh, are, you know, creating these very popular and beloved works. And I will say that I wish that I saw some of the bigger names uh, in the space talking a little bit more about the money of it all, because I really do think that, especially given how under duress um, publishing is as an industry that it's only going to get worse until people with real, you know, with real leverage start addressing it. Yeah. I think that's such an incredible point. And like I said, and everybody who listens regularly will know Ashley will be very upset that she wasn't here for this conversation. (laughs) I'm going to have to text her immediately when we're done to tell her all about it. Um, but I think that's so true. And just in general, just, you know, using the privilege that we have of like, advocating for other voices is so important, especially when it comes to publishing. Um, So thank you so much for bringing those thoughts with us against, you know, these very important thoughts um, as well with a very, very fun and timely summer read. So a perfect vintage is available at where uh, I'm not sure. Is it going to be in everywhere? Are you going to be able to get it in Barnes and Noble, indie bookstores? It's available pretty much everywhere. Um, it's it's anywhere you want to shop online. I recommend people use Bookshop if they shop online mm-hmm. to support independent bookstores. Um, it's available in a lot of brick and mortars. It's also I'm doing a books uh, a book tour, um, and I'm going to be in a lot of cities in the U.S. I'm also going to be in France. So um, if you go to a perfectvintagebook.com, it has all of the events. Um, you can also get uh, a um, I have fine art prints and canvas prints of the original painting if you like it and you want to your Ooh, I might need that. <laughs> so yeah, everything is happening at a perfectvintagebook.com. Perfect. We'll have all of that linked in our show notes as well as where you can find Chelsea on social media. And thank you so much for your time, Chelsea. We're so excited for you and can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. 
fans of the idea of you, I am expecting rave reviews of this book <laughs> this summer. And I uh, can't say that I've ever like craved. I've, I've never been like a Paris girly. I've never been anyone who like loves France. I've always like, mm. you know, whatever. And I've reading this book. I was like, I could go spend the summer at a chateau right now with zero complaints. See, I am a Paris girly. Like I, it is my, I took French all throughout high school. When I'm feeling down on myself, I do some French lessons in Duolingo. Like, oh. I think I was, I think I was built to like consume French food. So, yeah. All right. Well, see for uh for fans and converts alike and like i said in the interview i was so grateful that chelsea uh talked about the financial aspect of publishing and traditional publishing versus indie and why she chose indie and you know that ashley and i are both big fans of indie romance and trade paperbacks as well but there i I really appreciate the honesty of what is the behind the scenes of this industry because mm-hmm. I feel like so much of publishing is like gate kept and yeah. you know it's a very it's a romanticized industry and like you know writing and publishing is not all just you know f- floor to ceiling bookshelves and coffee and you know wearing glasses on the bridge of your nose like it is a business and right it was you know it's a conversation we haven't had on the podcast before so i found it very enlightening yeah so thank you to chelsea for interviewing with phoebe and being on reader realistic and thank you to all of you for listening and we will be back next week and we can't wait to share even more summer reads with you so thanks so much for listening We'll see you next time. Original music by Jake Thorne. Podcast produced and edited by me, Ashley Chandler, and Phoebe Wright. You can find us on Instagram at Read It or List It Pod. All rights reserved 2020.